Throughout this series, we aim to give you a clear picture of what's happening in the Japanese market by bringing you conversations with people who are at the heart of the Japanese business community. Today, we are joined by Tim Romero. Tim is a four time company founder, an investor, an author, and educator who has been in Japan for more than 20 years. His podcast on Japanese startups, Disrupting Japan, is hugely popular. And he has recently been appointed as CTO for TEPCO's Business Innovation Task Force. What better person to talk to for our first podcast? And now, without any further ado, we bring you Tim Romero. So I'm here with Tim Romero right now.、Uh, Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on board for our first podcast. So, by way of introduction, Tim, we'd love to know a little bit more about your background. We, we know you've got 20 odd years of experience here in Japan, but you know, what was it that brought you to Japan in the first instance? And if you could just give us an overview of, of what you've been doing in those 20 years, please. Okay, well, I'll try to condense that down as much as I can. So,、um, I actually first came to Japan on a record contract. I used to be a professional musician, and a Japanese company brought me to Japan. My、uh, music career was short. Even by Japanese standards. And、um, I bounced around into a, a number of jobs.、Um, but in 1998, I was working for an import export company. This internet thing sounded interesting to me. So I quit my job. I started my first company. I sold that to Digital Garage a few years later.、Um, in the years that followed, I sort of did that again. Uh, three more times,、uh, sold to, bankrupted to. So 50 50, it's not too bad in terms of startups. <laughs> That's a pretty good ratio, it's, I think. It's okay. Yeah, it's good going.、Um, in, in, I've also worked in market entry. I ran the、uh, Japan office of a SaaS company called Engine Yard. And I've worked with、um, other companies as a consultant, helping foreign companies come into Japan.、Hmm. But、uh, I'm probably best known. For what started out as a hobby, which is a podcast called Disrupting Japan, where I'll interview, I'll sit down with Japanese startup founders and we'll discuss in English. So there's alcohol involved in a fair number of these interviews. <laughs> but、uh, we'll, we'll talk about not so much their companies, but what it's like to run a startup here, how little companies can sell to large enterprises, and some of the kind of the social aspects.、Um, How they managed to convince their wife to let them quit Mitsubishi and start a crazy right, startup, things right, like that. Right, great. Okay. Well, certainly that part of it I want to learn a lot more about because I, I'm, I'm an avid listener of your podcast well, and, you.、uh, and, and keen to, to, to learn more about that. So we'll come on to that in a moment. But let's just dive back and pick up on a couple of those、uh, pieces that you mentioned. So,、uh, in my opinion, that is a very impressive ratio. If you've been involved in, in getting four companies off the ground and you've managed to get two of them successfully exited and, and maybe two didn't、uh, get to that point, that's an impressive ratio.、Um, I guess a good start point would be、um, for our community of listeners out there, 
What would be your general thoughts on what some of the key ingredients are that they should be thinking about um, when looking at the Japanese market and, and, and aiming to bring a business here or be successful here compared to other markets around the world? What are those unique points about Japan that one should consider? I'd say probably the most important thing when you're, you're looking at general advice, not something in a specific industry.、Mm-hmm. I think Japan is very sensitive to market commitment. So, any company that's coming into Japan, it's very important to signal that you're committed to the market, particularly technology companies.、Uh, Japanese industry has a very, what I consider, a healthy mistrust for foreign technology companies because they have a habit of blowing into the market and saying, look, we've got this great solution, it's going to solve all of your problems, and then disappearing in two or three years.、Mm-hmm. Right. So, I'd say either. Have the financial resources to commit to at least a, a small office in Japan or have a well established sales partner who is really committed to moving your product here.、Hmm. Okay, okay. So, would you say that those two options you've mentioned there, would they really be the main two choices or are there any other ways companies could consider it? There, there's lots of ways.、Um, when, when you start looking into specific industries, There's lots of,、um, lots of avenues that are, that are unique to an industry. So, for example, a lot of companies have been very successful with online sales, particularly if you're selling either very high technology or very niche. Some foreign companies have been very successful in Japan without even having a, a localized website、hmm. because what they're providing is just so unique. Mm. Mm.、Uh, if you're providing more of a Supply chain, something that's going to fit into another company's supply chain. A lot of times the sale is very simple.、Hmm. And you, you can show your commitment without a presence in the market. But if you're doing a consumer product or a, certainly a, a general B2B product, signaling your commitment to the market as a whole is really important.、Yeah. A- anything that's going to require support, whether that's direct、hmm. customer interaction or direct.、Um, Support of a business. Right. Got it. Got it. Okay. Now, looking at that 20 year period that you've, you've, you've had here, are you able to give us some comments and thoughts on the changes that you've seen over here in Japan? And, and I'm particularly thinking from the point of view of the Japanese corporations' interaction with the international world and kind of doing business together or joint ventures or investments or whatever. Any, any particular comments that you would say? I think the biggest change has happened in the last. Five to ten years. And I'm coming at it mainly from a startup perspective. But the changes that's happened in the startup world benefit all foreign companies.、Um, let, let me explain. So, when I first started my, when I started my first company back in 1998, if you wanted to work with a large Japanese enterprise as a small company, you would be pushed down through four levels of subcontractors.、Right. And that's changed、um, for a lot of reasons. A lot of A lot of it has been the Abe government's、um, shining a spotlight on startups and innovation and saying this is the future of the country and the future of Japan's economy depends on this. So there's a lot of companies that are scrambling to work with startups and doing so directly. And that's resulted in a more general openness towards not just Japanese startups, but foreign companies as well.、Hmm. And so I think now really is a great time to 
be coming into Japan, pitching new ideas, pitching new products, because it's much more open now than it was back around 2000. Mm, okay, well, that's good to hear. That's certainly encouraging signs. So very good to hear that. Um, you gave us some good tips about um, what is important in getting it right. And in, in particular, that message about showing the commitment that comes through very strongly. Thinking back again on your experience with, you mentioned that there's a couple of ventures you were involved in that didn't quite make it. And, and along the way, you've obviously been involved with advising and helping other companies. What are some of the pitfalls that you've come across? What are some of those reasons why things may fail? You know, and what are the things that our listeners should listen out for and be aware of when they're planning their, their strategies to come into Japan? Well, I think the, the reasons I've failed are, are different from the mistakes I see foreign companies coming to Japan. So okay. the, the mistakes I've made, uh, I, I try not to make the same mistake more than once. <laughs> I make new and different mistakes with every, with every company. Um, but in my case, they have tended to be misjudging the size of the market based on initial reaction. So I would get a tremendous number of excited users early on, but that wouldn't necessarily translate into a wider spread adoption. Uh, that that's kind of sunk a few of a, a few of my other projects, as well as one of those four startups. The biggest mistake I see foreign companies in general make when coming into Japan early on is reading too much into strategic partnership agreements and distribution agreements that don't have specific monetary commitments attached. Hmm. So right now, especially, but actually any time in the last 10 or 15 years, it's very easy if you've got an interesting product, whether it's a technology product or a new beverage or, or anything to get meetings. Because people want to meet you. They want to know what's happening in the outside world. Uh, a lot of companies want to sign strategic partnerships so they can make an announcement. They can have a press release so showing how forward-looking they are. And so the mistake a lot of companies make is they'll come to Japan, they'll set up a lot of meetings that will go fantastically well. They'll be told how innovative they are and how well their product's going to do in Japan. And they'll sign three strategic partnership agreements and then they won't be able to move any product. So I, I'd say the number one mistake I see people making again and again is putting too much faith in these strategic partnerships or non-committal mm. distribution agreements. Okay, that's, that is absolutely fascinating. Thank you for, for sharing that. So just to sort of dig a little bit deeper on that to try and really get some clarity around it, hearing your wealth of experience there, um, there's a couple of points that I kind of identify. One might allude to um, getting your research right. So for example, in the first instance, I think you were referring to one of your uh, challenges that didn't go yeah. so well. And you were saying perhaps you didn't quite anticipate how the take up would go or the usage would go. So that one might suggest that's a point of saying, well, was there a, a chance that you could have done more research or understood the market better, possibly? Um, so that's one interesting point I'd like to just again hear your views on and, and, and the ways that foreign companies could go about doing that research, because that's not easy, of course, when you're sitting overseas looking at the Japanese market. So that's one point. The second point um, that, that kind of came across um, was really when you spoke about the agreements that you may make um, and that monetizing bit. So th again, would that suggest that foreign companies should negotiate and talk 
a little deeper and a little harder and a little further before they make before they sign up to those agreements to get the Japanese side to give more commitment to a financial side. I mean, I'm trying to explore the bit a bit more detail about yeah, what you're I, saying. I think it's it's not necessarily negotiating harder or further. It might be negotiating longer, right? Um, because it is it is very difficult to get a financial commitment from a from a reseller. If you do, you know you've got someone who's really, really excited about your product and thinks they can move it. And that's a great sign. But a lot of times it's simply, again, signaling your commitment to the market. So it might take three or four meetings. It might take them flying out to to London to, to visit you at headquarters and look at your production facilities, perhaps. So meaningful relationships just take a little longer to build up in Japan. Um, okay. The process is the same, mm-hmm. but it just it the time frame tends to be stretched out. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with these strategic agreements, but you need to view them as just the very first step in right. building the relationship. Got it. In terms of the market research, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, gauge the interest of actual users yourself and strategic partners but engage a reputable market entry or a market research firm to get a sense of what the overall demand is Mm. now in my case i was always you know bootstrapping my own startups so you know there's a lot of guesswork involved in that so i didn't have that luxury of course Um, the one thing i would caution though about market research in general is it is very effective if you are selling a product that is um, a substitute for an existing product, if it's something that is well-defined in the marketplace. If you're selling something that is innovative, uh, that is new, you're not really going to get that accurate an image of what your market is from market research. Right. Okay. You know, it's something yeah. you really need to sit down with your users and get some feedback and you might have to tweak the product a little bit for for the Japan market. Right. Yeah, that's good advice. I understand exactly. Okay, great. Okay. Now, bringing things a little more up to date then, um, one of the points that I, I noticed when we were doing the research on you is you've recently got involved with uh, with TEPCO here. Yes. Um, are you able to talk about that? Can I ask you? Yes, I yeah, can. Okay, now. that's I, great. I, I had to kind of right. keep it quiet for a couple <laughs> yeah, months, okay. but it's but all out in the open We're on now. safe ground now. Good. All right. Well, that's great. I'm sure our, our listeners will be will be keen to know a bit more about that. So before we talk about specifically about that role, the, the, the question I want to ask you initially is organizations like TEPCO, who, you know, one might argue are big bureaucratic Japanese machines. Oh, right? there's, there's no argument there. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, they, I know from some of the experience we've had, we, we've brought UK-based companies and other international companies into the into J- the Japanese market, and we've tried to do business with TEPCO. We've, we've, we've knocked on the door. We've been to, Sep- to TEPCO. We've had meetings there. And it's always... In, that organization is in that category of a very difficult nut to crack, you know, because they have traditionally been very Japanese. Oh, yeah. Now, it's interesting what TEPCO have done of bringing guys like, like you on board, and we'll talk a bit more about your role in a moment. But the point I just want to get to is, again, from your wealth of experience, are you seeing any changes in the market here for these big, large Japanese corporates, particularly in the technology sector, to now start to open their eyes and accept 
overseas companies that have got innovation that they want to bring in and and have some kind of business collaboration are you seeing any changes there or not seeing any changes i am seeing changes but i i think we need to break those companies into two kind of broad categories so there are companies that are globally competitive companies like uh, toyota or panasonic or nec and these companies are much more open to working directly with foreign companies, with startups, with hearing new ideas. They, the top management knows they need to innovate. Uh, I think the near bankruptcy of Sharp and the Japanese government allowing a company as important as Sharp to be purchased by a foreign company um, kind, of, kind of lit a fire under a lot of Japanese senior management that the government is not going to be backstopping them anymore. And so they're very aggressive in searching out new technologies, both inside Japan and outside Japan. And that's already well underway. Now, the other type of companies, which are almost like, like TEPCO, a utility, and I think banking sort of falls under this category, they're firms that do not face international competition. But what's happening is the Japanese government is putting a lot of pressure on them to change through the, the, for example, the FSA is gently forcing Japanese banks to open up the way they do business, to work with startups. And the Japanese government is also putting a lot of pressure on the utility companies, uh, electric and gas throughout the country. Now, this change within uh, not just TEPCO, but, but any of the utilities is kind of happening from the inside out. So any utility company is just extremely conservative. Top management knows they need to change. The government is pressuring them to change. So the first step is really understanding what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, and this is being done through some strategic investments, uh, through a lot of research, through a number of pilot projects. And the next stage will be actually deploying this technology and, and, and making some changes. So. The changes are happening very, very fast from TEPCO's point of view, but it doesn't look like a lot of change when you see it from the outside yet. But what's being discussed and what's what's on the agenda is it's really innovative. And I think in 10 years, the way people think about energy in Japan is going to be so radically different than it is today. And that that's kind of what excited me about mm. getting into this position. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So from what you're saying there, it does sound like an exciting time for international companies to be looking at the Japanese market in terms of bringing their technologies or their products or their services here. The Japanese market is changing a little bit. And it's interesting to note that there's some government pressure to force that change as well. So that's really encouraging. Okay. The next question I'd like to ask you, again, from your experience there, you, you touched on a couple of areas and sectors where you think there's going to be change, but what other, or, or are there any other areas in that tech sector where you think there are going to be big opportunities here in the Japanese market over the, over the coming years? Well, if you're looking for like broad stroke opportunities, um, you look at any industry where there is rapid change. So the, the current startup boom and investment boom we're seeing has largely been driven by this, this move to smartphones. And that just ushered in tremendous change in a lot of industries. 
Now that is, um, I don't want to say it's wrapping up, but there are, there's still a lot of very innovative companies coming out using the smartphone as a platform, but the growth of the smartphone platform is slowing down. So it's, uh, let's say, maturing. But I'd say right now, if you're looking at the next five years in Japan, tourism is mm. hugely important. So any kind of business that is involved with tourism or can support that is going to get a lot of people wanting to talk to them and to hear how they can do business together. Mm. Um, it's a big problem. Lots of people are trying to figure out. Okay. Fascinating, yeah. And sort of linked to that one, that dovetails quite nicely into some of the big um, sporting events coming up. I think the Rugby World Cup is coming here in 2019. That's right. Tokyo 2020. Again, any thoughts and comments on that, on, on how you might see opportunity around there? I mean, tourism obviously is heavily linked to that. but Yeah, it's, it, to be honest, it's a little outside <clears throat> my, my area of expertise. Okay, sure. um, I, I just noticed there's a tremendous amount of investment being made in it. There are a lot of economies outside of say Tokyo and Osaka who are sort of like trying to reposition the whole economy to be more tourism friendly hmm. so I see it as kind of this this big opportunity in Japan um, there's a lot of money being invested in elder care if you look yeah. for anything that's that's changing yeah uh, or any place where people are Scared. Fear is a fantastic motivator hmm. <laughs> and well that's this is why Panasonic and all of these electronic companies all of a sudden are opening up and, and trying to work with startups and trying to find the next great product is because they're afraid that what happened to Sharp will happen to them. Mm. Okay, great. Fabulous, fabulous. Okay, well, that links us in quite nicely to start to bring things really up to date. So one of the things I want to understand and explore is the, the amazing work you're doing with, with Disrupting Japan. So tell us a little bit about that. You've been going on that for, is it two, three years now? Three years, three almost, years. almost exactly three years. Okay. Um, it's a podcast I started because, well, quite frankly, I started it because a, a book deal I was negotiating fell through. And it just, um, it, it seemed like uh, writing a book's a whole lot of work and, and nobody makes any money writing a book. At least I wasn't going to. <laughs> and I had the idea of a podcast that, I was just going to be interviewing my friends. I didn't think a podcast on Japanese innovation and entrepreneurship would ever have a listenership more than like, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so. And we've got a little over 3,000 listeners per show now. Fabulous, congratulations. And I think there's just, there is this tremendous interest in Japan all over the world. Mm. And I've expanded a bit. I've had some interviews with, um, the Japan CEOs who've led the market entry of like Oracle and PayPal, as well as more of the, the homegrown entrepreneurs. So it's, it's I try to keep it a, a good balance. Hmm. Okay. What, I'm curious to know, what uh, was it about podcasting that, that grabbed your attention? I, 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 you just told us how you linked in from the book deal, but why, why podcasting? What, what, what got you to, to record your first one? I, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, it was just one of these crazy side projects I, I started. Mm -hmm. And, you know, behind those four companies I've started, there was probably two dozen side projects that never really went anywhere. Okay. This is where a bit of that serial entrepreneur tagline is coming through, right? Maybe it's a bit of the serial entrepreneur uh -huh. mixed with a bit of the musician as well. Right. Yeah, of course. So okay. it, it's another, uh, another way to get behind the microphone. Yeah. Um, but a, a, an amazing community is built up around the show. Uh, 
next week we're going to be having our third anniversary live show and last year about 160 people came out for it we're expecting about 200 this year and it's just it's I I couldn't stop if I wanted to is that is that event that you're arranging is everybody welcome or is that by invite only absolutely everyone is all right so you better just give it a plug where where is it what what day and where it's on September 19th if you come to the website disruptingjapan.com it's got a big banner right up there at front it's in super deluxe in Roppongi great well let's hope you get plenty of people coming along to that so now as you've gone through that journey it's three years as you mentioned and I think I'm right in saying you've just done your 100th podcast is that right that's right my yeah. 100th came out uh, just a few days ago listen to that one it's it's, it's as good as all the others a very good Thank podcast you. so but as you've gone on the journey you, you you sort of described to us where it all started and, and and why you started but it's obviously something that's gained huge momentum and if you're getting up you know around 3,000 listeners for, for each show now that's that's a great performance I mean how has that kind of unfolded for you over the last three years was there a point where you suddenly thought Hey, this is getting a bit serious. You know, I've got some momentum going here, and 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 is it you know is it different today to you now? You've done you've you've, you've nailed your one hundredth podcast, and you've got your three thousand listeners. Is are you in a very different place to where you were when you started three years ago with your thought process on what it's all about and where are you taking am, it? You know, I, I actually went through a couple of phases with it. So um, the one hundredth podcast, I told the story of a, of a company I shut down. Like mm-hmm. right before it became my my fifth real startup, um, and actually that would, that happened about a year ago, and after I shut that down, I was looking for something to do next, and I decided to make disrupting Japan a a job, hmm. and so I sold advertising, and I was a full time podcaster, uh, and I did that for about a year, and it got to the point where I, I love the conversations I get to have. And I mean, I, I just feel so lucky I get to sit down with these really creative people and, and pick their brains. And I, I'm sure, you know, a lot of Japanese are a lot more comfortable answering questions directly in English than they are in Japanese. Right. Yeah. But when you do it professionally, I was spending about 60% of my time doing ad sales. Ah, okay. Which is not something I particularly enjoy. Right. And so I... Just a few months ago, I kind of decided to wind down the professional aspect of the podcasting. Ah. And um, this is the same time that the TEPCO right. opportunity came up. So yeah. in a way, I'm almost back in the same place that I was mm. <laughs> when I started, where I'm just doing it for fun and because I love doing it. Right. I just have a lot more people listening to it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think I can relate to what you're saying there, because sometimes these things that one can be so passionate about become hugely successful because the passionate part comes through doesn't it and when a commercial aspect sometimes comes in and hey we all have to keep the wool from the door and feed ourselves right so you know that that part comes in for everybody in in your life but when that part starts to come in it can sometimes just take a little bit of the fun and the original edge off of it can't it so it sounds like you may have gone through that curve and come out the other side a little bit exactly so i mean interesting in a sense it's very similar to what happened in my my music career it just i learned much quicker with the podcast rather than six years i spent as a professional musician it's the the i always loved the music Hmm. Uh, i just hated the industry right and unfortunately at that time you know i'd spent 20 percent of my time doing music and 80 percent of doing uh industry stuff okay and with the podcasting it was 40 percent talking to people and and having these conversations and 60% selling ads mm-hmm. so um, right. yeah 
yeah, decided it was come uh, turn it back into a hobby. Got it. Got it. Okay. Now, just to uh, help our listeners that that maybe haven't tuned into any of your shows yet, and I hope they do go out there and start to listen to some of them because there's a wealth of great uh, great podcasts out there. Um, just so we can really explain what it does. So you're they're mainly focused on the Japanese startup community in Japan. Is that right? Do you, would you like to elaborate and just explain a little more about that? Well, sure. Most most of them are, most weeks I'll, I'll pick one startup founder and I'll sit down with him or her and talk about how they started their company, what was difficult, what was easy, what was surprising, um, what they think should be changed in Japan to foster entrepreneurship. And it's not... We don't spend a whole lot of time talking about their particular company. Well, actually we do, but I edit that way down. Um, <laughs> but it's really more of, I think, looking at startups gives you a perspective on the country that you wouldn't see otherwise. Hmm. So looking at startups is kind of telling you what problems a society is trying to solve. and. That gives you some interesting insights on the society. And that, that's kind of what I enjoy about it. And that's what I try to convey with the, with the podcasts. Mm. Um, some of the things that a lot of people find surprising is that about 20% of my guests are women. There are a tremendous number of women entrepreneurs in Japan. I, I think the ratio is probably higher here than it is in San Francisco. Wow, really? Yeah. That's amazing. Well, and I've, I've had two different women founders explain to me that it is socially easier for women to start a company in Japan than it is for a man. And the reason they give is that, well, you know, if you're a man and you go to Todai or Keio and you graduate, you've got some real pressures on you. I mean, you're, you're carrying the family name. You've got, um, you know, great things are expected of you. But as a girl... Traditionally, it's kind of like most of the family expectations are sort of like, oh, well, you're going to get married in a few years. So if you want to do this wow. startup thing, yes, yeah, you go out and you, you do that. How interesting. And Gosh. so, yeah, a number of to have told me that now it's, it's socially easier right. for women. Right. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Rightly or wrongly, right? Rightly but or it's, wrongly. But it, that is the situation, right? right? Fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Okay. I'm also curious, do, do you know the split between Japanese uh, listeners and, and non-Japanese listeners? Do you know that ratio? Or, or I, I think, do you not have that? well, it's about 40% uh, of my listenership is in Japan oh, okay. and 60% is overseas. Right. Um, the exact breakdown is, is probably 20% uh, Japanese mm -hmm. and 80% primarily English speaking. Right. Okay. Or let's say Got it. other. Got it. It's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ah, fascinating. Okay. So one bit of good news that we can reassure all your dedicated listeners and subscribers is that you're, although you've taken this new exciting role with TEPCO, you're still going to be carrying on with the podcast. Oh, just the same way. Yeah, good. Well, that's, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Okay, great. So we touched on the TEPCO role a little bit and you shared a, a, a bit with us about that. But, but could you just elaborate a little bit more about what exactly what that role is that you're going to be doing there and what, what your contribution is for that company? Well, I'm, I'm CTO of the Business Innovation Task Force there. And so my role is largely evaluating the technologies that are being used around the world and seeing if they're suitable for deployment in Japan. And if they are, then making it happen, hmm. quite wow. simply. 
Do you mean technologies that TEPCO are using themselves already around the world? No, or are you, no, that are being you're, used you're looking by, outside of TEPCO, a outside of technology TEPCO, that's out there, right? So the energy industry globally is going through this huge wave of deregulation. Um, so ener energy production, energy transmission, and energy retailing around the world, those are being split up, including Japan. And so the, the transmission is kind of a natural monopoly. You're not going to have a lot of different companies out stringing these you know, high voltage power lines around the country. But energy production is going to be very competitive, particularly among renewables. And energy retailing, sort of consumer, uh, consumer products that, that use energy, different ways of, of analyzing and, and consuming, are, are, there's going to be a lot of innovation there. Right. And they call it retail, but it's also things, I think we're going to see more people doing things like um, batteries. So you'll have intelligent agents that will be able to buy electricity in the middle of the night and charge up a battery mm -hmm. when it's cheap mm -hmm. and then sell it back into the grid mm -hmm. the next day when it's expensive. Right. Yep. And over the next, and, and these are pilot projects that are being run in markets all around the world. And so TEPCO is really interested in learning what's going on. And if something is successful overseas, thinking about deploying it here in Japan as well. Got it. Okay. A couple more questions on that one. First of all, it's kind of intriguing that they've hired a, a foreigner, and I mean that in the politest possible way, you know, they've, they've, they've hired a, a non-Japanese person into that role rather than having a Japanese person doing it. I mean, before I move on to the next question, have you got any comment on, on that? It's quite an intriguing point in itself. I think the the bigger gap for them wasn't so much the, the Japanese versus foreigner. It was the entrepreneur versus large company person. Right. So the both the frictions I experience and the value I add are, are largely based on the, the entrepreneurial attitude, the, the rapidity of change, the, the, the flexibility of applying new technologies. Mm, right. Got it. Got it. Okay. I understand. The second question I wanted to ask is when you're in, in this role, when you're out there, you know, looking globally at, at the innovation that's going on and the new, the new things that are going on that, maybe of relevance and of interest to TEPCO. What are the potential commercial models? And I'm, I'm obviously, again, thinking about our audience listening in here. And there may well be some innovative companies out there listening in thinking, hey, I've got a particular solution. I've got, I've got that battery that can, you know, charge up overnight and feed back into the grid. And I'm sure I, I would love to talk to TEPCO about it. Now, for, is it a case of TEPCO are looking out for these innovative technologies that they would then develop themselves? Or would they be looking to do collaborations with overseas companies? Or would they be looking to acquire overseas companies? What, what kind of commercial models could come out of this, Tim? I... I think a lot of that is, is currently being discussed. Okay. I, I think it's far more likely that they would, for, you know, for any given piece of technology, it's going to be far more likely that they'd want to partner with a foreign company and deploy it in Japan rather than try to clone it mm -hmm. because just that's not what they do. They're not good at that. Right. And it's, it's far cheaper to, to buy a working product than to try to build mm -hmm. one yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in terms of actual acquisitions and things, I think it's way too early to tell. I mean, TEPCO's made some really interesting tr strategic investments, and 
what'll happen in five or 10 years, who knows? Yeah, okay, okay. I, I guess one final point I should clarify is, is it with this with this division? And, and I realize it's early days. You, you've only been in the job a couple of months or something, so you're, you're working things out with your with your colleagues. But um, is it a case of there's a very there's likely to be a very clear strategic plan that you and your colleagues are really going out actively looking, and it's going to be driven by what Tepco is looking for, or are you guys open for companies to contact you if they believe they've got some innovation? Oh, we're absolutely open. Okay, for great. If- great. Yeah, um, we'll put my contact info up at, yeah. up at the site. It's great. And uh, any interested party can get in touch they with They can me. get in touch directly. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Wonderful. Thank you. All righty. That's great. Um, and this role that you've taken on, that is pretty much a full-time role for you? or Pretty how, much. Yeah, yeah. okay. Well, you're going to be a busy uh, guy, right? It, it was something that I... Um, they hired me very quickly. Hmm. So I was expecting... A company the size of TEPCO to want to wait like three months or something. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I started almost immediately. So Amazing. I had to spin down some other things. And <laughs> right. it's, but yes, it's pretty much full time. You sound like the kind of guy that works pretty much 24-7 anyway. So I could imagine you've got a lot my, on your plate. My wife hates so. it. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, listen, that's fascinating. It's been a really enjoyable discussion um, and we've learned a lot. So thank you so much for coming in. Well, thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure and, and a wonderful array of experiences you've picked up over the last 20 years. And, and what a journey from coming into the market with a musical interest to, to going through and, and, and having a couple of startups that have, have uh, succeeded and you've exited from, going right through to getting your podcast going and making that hugely successful and building that big community. Um, and then, then finally, this role we've just spoken about with Tepco. It sounds like an amazing journey you've had. And, and it, to me, it still feels like I'm just getting started. Wow. Well, that's wonderful. That's got to be a good thing. Well, here's to the next 20 years, right? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Tim, just before we wrap up, it'd be great just to let people know how they can get hold of you. So, so do you want to just let people know what, what's the best way you'd like people? We'll, we'll put the details up on the site, but, but just while we've got you here as we're wrapping sure, up. Absolutely. The best way to get in touch with me is via Disrupting Japan. So if you go to disruptingjapan.com, there's contact information there. You can send me an email to tim at disruptingjapan.com. That's great. All right, Tim. Well, on that point, uh, we're going to wrap this one up. So thank you once again. been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for coming on board. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, I'll just say to all of our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in to this podcast from Export to Japan. It's been uh, great to have you with us. And uh, keep tuned in for further webinars that we'll be running and further podcasts along the way. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about exporting to Japan or the Japanese market in general, visit exporttojapan.jp. If you have a question for us, send it to info at exporttojapan.jp. Thank you for listening.